Well, good evening. Welcome to a new series. I'm really excited about this series. Uh, I think this one is one that I feel like has the ability to kind of advance our faith. And I'll tell you more about that in a second. But we started a couple minutes early because, first of all, I'm gonna go ahead and put this number up here where you can text your questions. The beauty of having this number is that people wherever around the country can text questions during, uh, during class. You can text it anytime you want, but it's probably only gonna get answered during class. But you know, basically, you can do it from anywhere. And the beauty of this is, is my helper, who is not here, my wife, she can also receive them from anywhere. And so she's currently quarantined at our house right now. A uh, little COVID situation, uh, very mild. She is fine. In fact, we're being extra cautious with our quarantining just because there's so much around, but she's had a very, very mild case. She's felt normal for a few days, but we're just going to be you know, good about following the guidelines for your sake. So in any case, uh, she is not here, but you can text your questions in and she will send them on. Second announcement is Israel opened the country up last weekend. So it was right in time for us to be able to take our mid-February trip. So Laura and I take groups uh, as a discipleship thing and we take groups to Israel. And so we have a trip going in mid-February and we also, because we couldn't go last year because of COVID, we had such a long waiting list, we also opened up a trip in last week of April, first week of May. There are still a few slots on that trip, but only about a week before you have to make commitments, financial commitments to buy airline tickets. So if you were like, well, that would be a fun thing to do, a getaway from uh, Oklahoma City for a little while, where would you get information about that if you wanted? If you will text to this number, not a question, but your email address, then I'll see that you get the info on the trip if you happen to be interested. Uh, I'm not pushing the trip, I'm just telling you that if you happen to want to, I want you to know how to do it. Also, we predominantly have always taken crossings, folks, but it's never, like most things at this church, it's not exclusive. And so people have joined us from other churches and around the place, so if you have that question, but people that don't go to church here don't tend to hear about this. And we don't advertise it because they do fill up pretty quickly. So those are my announcements, I think, that I've gotten out of the way. So Israel trip, text your email address, and also text questions during the lesson. The reason I think you might have a few questions is I wanna look at the stories in Genesis, but I want to look at it in a different way than you're probably used to hearing it. So for example, in this lesson, we're going to talk about creation. We're gonna cover a whopping two verses out of Genesis 1. But I wanna do it in a way that's a little different than you've normally heard. So you may have questions like, how long was a day in Genesis 1? Is the earth 6,000 years old or is it 14 billion years old? Uh, you know, things that you, you tend to hear a lot if you're a Christian, you've heard a lot of teaching on Genesis, and those are not unimportant things, and I don't have disagreements with them. And if you would like to know the answers to some of those, I'm happy to address them, just text it in. But I'm gonna take a little different approach because I wanna take that story and I want you to see by the end of this lesson, and this is gonna be true for all of these stories, why that matters to you and me right now. What difference does that make? Is it a matter of just uh, faith history, which is a good thing in and of itself, 
Or does it actually change the way you and I think about our lives today? And I'm gonna argue that the Old Testament stories are indeed history. They are also God's revelation of lessons and his plan of redemption. But in addition, I think those stories are intended to actually make a difference in our lives. And I'll show you what I mean by that. So this lesson is going to take the form of just telling you some stories and let's go along a little path together to set up how this matters to you and me today. So send your questions if you have them to that number. How did we get here? This is a basic human question, just looking back in history for as far back as history has been recorded. There's something wired into human beings that looks up in the sky and sees the stars and says, I wonder what those things are. But even if you know what those things are, where in the world did they come from and how did they get here? When you look around and you see the storms, you see the sunshine, you see the waves of the sea, you see the mountains and you wonder where did this all come from? Well, I don't think that's just idle curiosity. I think there's a little bit of survival instinct in that, if you will. Because when we look at our surroundings, and let's face it, our surroundings were hostile in the past, and they still are hostile. And there's something in us that wants security. Well, that's natural, isn't it? Any psychologist will tell you that, any sociologist will tell you that, is people are motivated a great deal by food, and I mean, at the very bottom of the of the hierarchy, food and shelter, and you know, there are just some basic things that we'd like to know. So you look around at this world, and we would like to be able to explain what is happening in the world. Actually, if we could, we'd like to go further and not just explain what's happening, we'd like to predict what's going to happen. Like if you stand on top of a mountain when there's smoke coming out of it, you might get blown up because it's a volcano. In other words, we would like to predict our surroundings, wouldn't we? Ideally, we would like to control our surroundings. This is every human being, every time, no matter what your faith is, this is the way we're wired. And I think we ask that question, how did this get here, as part of our quest to try to find security or safety. We like to order our world. We like to order our surroundings. I believe this is a fundamental human trait. And consequently, we're gonna take a little walk, a short walk through history, and I want us to look through that lens of different creation accounts that people have had. There have been creation stories as long as there have been human beings. Whether that's cave writings on a wall, or it is some of the stories I'm about to show you. In other words, people have tried to explain how everything got here for time immemorial. Let me give you an example. I just wanna go back to one that's fairly well known. This is 2000 BC. So about 2000 years before the time of Christ, there is a record, these are clay tablets that have been written on in what's called cuneiform, so it's not letters, it's just little stamps, basically, and they form a phonetic language called Sumerian language. And there are 
uh, several of these clay tablets and on them is recorded one of the oldest creation stories that we have. Not the oldest creation story there ever was, but one of the oldest that comes down to us from about 2000 BC. This is called the Enuma Elish. Yeah, I put that up there. So this is an ancient creation account and I'm just gonna tell you the story that it tells. In the very, very beginning, before there was anything, there was the god Apsu and the goddess Tiamat. And these, this god and this goddess, I'm gonna flip forward just so you can see how those are spelled. And so this god and this goddess had children and they were gods. And then those children of theirs also had children who were not human beings. These are in the realm of the gods. Well, the grandkids started ripping and running around and making so much noise. Now this is the part of the story that sounds really believable to me, okay? That Apsu, the grandfather said, we gotta do something about these kids. And his resolution was fairly extreme. I'm, just, I'm telling you the story, I'm just rewording it, but this, this is the story, believe me. He said, I think we should kill them. And Okay, this is still believable to me. Okay, anybody that's had toddlers knows that, okay, I see how they got this story. So Tiamat says, little harsh, honey. Why don't we find another way to deal with it? But Apsu's advisor said, no, you're right. The only way to get peace and quiet here is to get rid of these kids. Well, it turns out the kids and the grandkids find out about this. And so the kids and the grandkids decide we better strike first. And so they killed Apsu. And they decide, we're now gonna be in charge of things. Well, Tiamat, very angry about this. And so she takes on the form, so this dragon figure on the left is a representation of Tiamat. She is the goddess of primordial chaos. And I will tell you this, in ancient mythology, chaos is always, always, uh, you know, shown to be a female. Now, I'm not making any comment on that. I'm just telling you that chaos is always represented by a female deity in history. Well, she is the goddess of primordial chaos, and she takes on the form of, and there are various forms that you'll see, and the, these are ancient carvings, by the way. And so that you will see that she is a, a sea monster or a sea dragon, and she is a, that is the form that she takes on. Well, the kids and the grandkids get really scared because they realize she is very formidable. And so they go to one of the great, great grandkids by this time, and his name is Marduk. Marduk is given all the powers of all the gods in order to be able to stand up against Tiamat. And so he's given the power over the four winds, and he's given the wisdom of his father, and he's given all these things, and so he fights and slays Tiamat. That's what this carving and engraving is showing. And so according to this creation story, he then takes the carcass of Tiamat and creates the heavens, the universe that you see, and creates the earth. And he becomes the greatest and the king of all the gods. He takes the advisor that had told Apsu to kill them and he kills him and from his blood he makes human beings 
for the purpose of being servants of the God. And so all the kids and grandkids and all the gods look up to Marduk. If you have done a lot of reading in archeology, span particularly in ancient Near Eastern archeology, span you'll recognize Marduk is the primary God of the Babylonian people. He, you will see his figure, that figure all over ancient archeology span because the Babylonians for, oh my goodness, well over 1200 years, this was their primary deity. This was their creation story, okay? Now, for you and I, you say, gosh, that sounds awfully superstitious. That is not actually the point I wanna look at in this story. The point is, notice what this story is trying to do. This story is trying to order the world. How did we get here? Make some sense of the order of the world. And so this story, while untrue and, and superstitious, nevertheless, for millennia, people look to this story to make some explanatory power of their world. It gave you an answer of why we human beings are here. We're here to serve the gods. And that's why the service of all these kinds of gods involves people taking money and food and things and giving them to the God. We were created to serve the gods. The gods are capricious, they're all powerful. And so when things happen, someone gets sick and dies, someone falls off a cliff, uh, something bad happens and an earthquake destroys a town. All these things are the pleasure and the whim of the gods. So needless to say, this story doesn't have a lot of power in terms of predicting or controlling our environment, but it was an early attempt, and there are many attempts like this, but what they all have in common is making some order out of a universe that I do not understand. The implications of this is you can never really be very secure because you never know what the gods are gonna do. Now, this story doesn't take very long to get to the Greek gods, to get to the Roman gods, to get to the Persian gods, to get to the Hindu gods. All of them are stories like this, and they are all trying to order our world in some way. Does that make sense? Okay, let's move on through time a little bit. And as time goes on, humanity be continues its quest to explain and to predict and to control our environment. And along uh, about 500 years ago, you get, uh, it started with the Greeks 2,000 years ago, when they began to observe the world and said, look, maybe we can make some sense out of this. Let's forget the gods thing for a minute, because even if they're really there, you can't predict what they're going to do. It's, it's worse than an episode of Desperate Housewives. I mean, it's just crazy, you know, what they might do, right? So let's look at the world. And they began to observe the world, and they began to see patterns, and you get the beginning of science in a really infant stage. But science kicks into high gear about 500 years ago when people have the tools now to start making some orderly sense of, of the universe. Now they don't really know where this thing came from, but they begin to explain it by saying it appears that those things out there are objects of mass. Some of them are like our sun and some of them are planets and they appear to follow certain rules. This is the scientific method describing and explaining what we observe. And so time goes on and you get to the Big Bang Theory. So before 1960, almost everyone 
almost every astrophysicist, almost every uh, scientist believed that the universe has always been here. And you know, that's not a bad assumption because the scientific method only addresses, what the scientific method does is it works inside a system to explain it. It makes observations, it tests it with experiments, and you discover, quote, laws, the laws of nature, which is just an arrogant way of saying, this appears to be a principle by which this system works. And that's been very good because that scientific method has yielded tremendous things for humanity. Of course, that scientific method has yielded horrific things for humanity, but that's not the method, that's the use we put it to, isn't it? We have atomic bombs and we have a cure for polio. We have pollution that's unbelievable as a result of that, and at the same time, we have comfort that people have never known before. So this scientific method begins to start explaining, predicting, and even controlling a little piece of our universe. And so it's very useful. Well, along about night, everything was fine until 1960s. And they said, look, we don't know where it came from. It's not a scientific question. All we know is we're just trying to describe the way it works. Fair enough, that's good science. But then, in the 1960s, it was found that the universe is expanding. So Roger Penrose, Stephen Hawking come up with a mathematical model for this, and then some bright guy goes, hey, wait a minute. If this thing's expanding, that means it used to be smaller. And if you go all the way back, what do you get? A big bang. Well, this is horrible news for scientists because you know what a big bang looks an awful lot like? A beginning of the universe. And you know what a beginning of the universe starts to look a lot like? Genesis chapter one, right? And so this is a very bad thing. Nevertheless, it still doesn't explain where things come from. It just explains that, well, we think it was a you know, really dense little mass and it just blew up. Looks like my teenager's room, you know, just boom. There's like an explosion in this place. And that's it as far as it goes. And you can see there kind of mapping out what the theory is of how that played out. Well, here's the problem. This orders the universe, doesn't it? But it's not very satisfying. For example, and I admire uh, Tyson's honesty, the universe is blind to our sorrows and indifferent to your pains. I hope you have a nice day because no one cares, right? Even Marduk doesn't care, even Tiamat doesn't care. As superstitious as it was, at least they cared about something. This is a completely uh, mechanistically run universe and there is no room for care consideration. You are nothing in this universe except a random thing that just happened in this universe. And so, needless to say, this was not widely popular. Not too many people say, I can't tell you how comforted I am to know that the universe just doesn't care and I'm just a cog in a big wheel. Well, you know what, human beings, they say, yes, I wanna order the world, but man, I'm having a hard time with this idea that I just don't matter and nothing really matters. And needless to say, that didn't work out very well. So they began to say, well, wait a minute though. Where'd this thing come from? And so science takes a leap out of science because what I'm about to tell you is not a scientific theory, it's just a theory of where did this come from? This is the current creation story. Well, there were a bunch of universes. And this is an, an illustration of each one of those balls is a universe. Now, you could say, Terry, this sounds a lot like Men in Black one. Ever seen that movie? 
Yeah, it's science fiction. That's what this sounds like. In the beginning, there was a bunch of universes. Where'd they come from? Don't know, quit arguing about that, okay? Quit asking. But there were a bunch of universes. And so the Big Bang, our universe, came about because some other universe tunneled into it. And this is called the multiverse. And this is a legitimate thing. And so the idea is there are an infinite number of universes out there. Now you may be asking, how does that solve the problem? But it is a creation story. It's not a good creation story, but it's a creation story. And it says, we don't know how, but this universe got here as part of a bunch. You know why this is really popular? It honestly is not have a lot more explanatory power than Marduk and Tiamat and Apsu. I mean, it's just not, ter you can't falsify this, you can't test it, so it's not terribly scientific. But the reason this is so useful is here's the big problem. The big problem with the Big Bang Theory is not the science that goes into it per se. The big problem is why do you get a universe that seems so finely tuned that you could have life? Do you, you probably know how many physical parameters of this universe have to be just Right. There's 70 some parameters that if any of them, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, all kinds of things that this universe is so ordered such that only if all of those things lined up could you have life. Well, that's troubling if you're a scientist because it sure looks like somebody planned this thing. Well, the multiverse is a great answer for that because then what you say is, well, if you've got an infinite number of possibilities, you're bound to stumble on one. Those of you that are golfers also know this principle. It's called the blind, uh, blind squirrel principle. It's like even a blind squirrel finds an acorn. You know, even you and I can hit a good shot every now and then. Well, if you've got a, an infinite number of universes, you'll find one where you can have life. This is the modern creation story. I mean, I'm not making this up. This is the creation story. What does it do? Well, it serves the purpose of ordering our world by observing, and that's a good thing. It serves the purpose of giving us some predictive power. I mean, nobody can still forecast the weather. Nevertheless, there's some predictive power in this model, and you can control little pieces. In other words, you can control certain diseases that couldn't be controlled before. This is also a very good thing. But as far as where things come from, instead of it being the whim of these personalities, Marduk and Tiamat and Apsu, you now get the cold, uncaring system that was spun into place and has no feeling, no thinking, no personality, no nothing. It's just a cold, uncaring system that got spun up and let go. That makes sense? That's a modern creation story. So, in that context, I want to put the biblical creation account. And I want you to see from the point of view of what have human beings been trying to do. And this is God's answer to the human need for order and control and the ability to understand how did we get here. And so Genesis 1 doesn't begin with uh, things like Hang on, I'm um, getting questions in here too. So it doesn't begin 
with some random idea. It doesn't begin with a method, a scientific method. It begins by explaining how things got ordered the way they are ordered. In other words, it doesn't pretend to be a science text. I mean, it, I think what the Bible says is true. I just think it's trying to answer this question, this fundamental question that we have. How do we get here? How does this thing work? How does this order come out of this? And how can I understand this order? And so that's what this is trying to do. It doesn't come off as superstition, like, well, there was a God who made the earth out of the carcass of another God. You know, that kind of a thing that you can tell is an anthropomorphic idea out of people's minds. This is basically taking a really different, different um, approach. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which is just biblical uh, shorthand for the universe. It's just the way they talked about everything that you can see. Now, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. This acknowledges the deepest human need is to explain formless is chaos. How do you make order out of chaos? Is there order in chaos? Is this understandable? And the second is the idea of emptiness. In other words, how did we get here? What process, what plan, what random sequence of events is the modern creation story? How did that happen? And so the Genesis account brilliantly acknowledges what are you really trying to find out? We really want to know the answer of how did we get here? Is there some sense to this, some order to this? And so it does. And so as it goes on, what you see is God begins, and this is the rest of Genesis chapter 1, he begins to order the chaos. He has night and day, the heavens, the earth. He separates the waters. He begins to order. The Genesis story is answering the deep human question of, is there any sense in this? Is there any order in this? And so this story is all about God ordering the universe because it is a very well-ordered place. And this is an explanation that God himself intelligently ordered it. One other thing that's really interesting, and you're not gonna see this anywhere else, how does God order the universe? He speaks order into the universe. He doesn't go kill a goddess and use her body, right? He doesn't have a big bang that ends up being just kick the can to a million universes and then kick the can behind them to something else. He just starts and says, there's chaos and I spoke order into it. What does that imply? Speaking implies intelligence, Speaking implies personality. Speaking implies purpose. And so in the very first sentence of, Gen of Genesis, the very first two verses, you start to see Genesis' story addressing the deepest needs that we have, answering those fundamental questions. So, but it goes on. If you stop there at Genesis 1, you have a creation account that explains the order. It explains the emptiness. 
Because now, instead of a random series of events, which by the way, the majority of Americans believe in the idea of evolution, but they don't think it's believable. Do you understand the difference between those two? This is one of the most curious scientific ideas ever. It basically is like, look, I'm not religious, so I kind of think it must be evolution is how, how plants and animals and all that kind of biological life got here. But if you explain Darwinian evolution to me that it's all random chance and there are just so many lucky, 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 lucky chances that we got here, nobody believes that. You see, you see the problem? Scientists have got a major PR problem with this. And that is, if you're not religious, you gotta have some story. You gotta answer that question somehow, but nobody believes that that's likely at all. But what you see God doing is just simply saying, this was a conscious, intentional, purposeful creation. The closest you get to this is the idea of a theistic evolution. Uh, you also will hear uh, creationism is a literal account, like yes, this is actually what happened and this is why it happened and this explains what's happening. Theistic evolution says, I wanna use the scientific method, but I actually wanna fill in all the holes, and there are tons of holes. I wanna fill all that in with God so he can kind of come to the rescue of the evolutionary process. Then you have intelligent design, which isn't Christian per se. I mean, it's just not. And that just says, look, I don't know about the religion of this. All I know is you look around this place, somebody made this place. In other words, this thing has some intelligence behind it. And so there are different kinds of stories that try to corral them. This story just goes to the deepest human need of wanting to understand the order of what is happening. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with an explanation of how we got here. And this is what's very, at this point, you're gonna depart from every other creation story, the scientific creation story, all the other creation stories that have ever been, is this is far, far more comprehensive. This isn't just God started this thing, spun it up and said, have fun kids. This is God's continued involvement. So now I wanna take you to the New Testament and this is not a coincidence that John 1 talks about this in this way. He starts with in the beginning, which is intended to tie this all the way back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John says, in the beginning was the word. Now he could have said, in the, because it's clear what, he's, what he means by that, in the beginning was Christ. But instead, at that time, the Greek worldview said, you know what, I don't, we don't necessarily, the intelligent Greeks didn't believe in the gods anymore. They just thought, Zeus, come on. I mean, this is a sitcom, right? They thought, but there's gotta be something that ordered this place. This is not random. And you know what they called that? The logos, the logos. You've heard that before, and that's just the Greek word for word. That's just what they chose. They said the logos ordered it. What is the logos? I don't know much about it. I just know it's what made this place and what did it. And John says, what you don't understand, I'm gonna to explain to you. In the beginning was the logos, and all the Greeks go, that's what we exactly what we thought. He said, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. They go, ah, you're making some interesting claims now. And he said, yes, through him all things were made, and without him, nothing was created that exists today. 
And in him was, now it's going well beyond a creation story, in him was life, and that life was the light of humanity. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it. Just putting those two together, Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1, do you see the connections? You have the light coming into the world. You have life. You don't have emptiness. You have life. You have dynamism. You have a plot. You have characters coming into this story. And so it's almost like in Genesis 1-1, God told them the basic creation story. And then when Christ comes, he says, let me tell you the rest of the story. This has been the plan all along. And the interesting thing about this part of this story is God continues to be involved. And you'll see that all through uh, the scripture as well. Hebrews says this, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many times, various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Christ, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. What's that saying? God became flesh and lived among us the incarnation of Christ. We're way beyond a traditional creation story, aren't we? But we're still connected to the creation story. This is a very robust creation story. And the son is sustaining all things by his powerful word. Notice the emphasis on speaking. Why? Intelligence, emotion, purpose. Speaking, our God is the speaking God. He's the intelligent God. He's the personal God. Not only did he spin all this up, but he continues to be involved in sustaining the universe. The Jews knew this. The Jewish rabbis always thought, and here's what they would say. This is way back in the time of Jesus. Jewish rabbis understood God didn't just create the world. God has an ongoing relationship with the Jewish people. That's what they thought, and with his creation. Right, And so they said, if God ever stopped speaking this world into existence, it would all go away. In other words, God didn't just create it at the beginning. God continues to continually create it. Well, the Christian idea and understanding is that that's true in a sense, but the way it's expressed in the revelation in the New Testament is, is God sustains this universe. Without God, there is no existence. He is not just a creator God, he is a sustaining God. This is interesting because this creation story now brings the idea of he obviously cares about his creation. He nurtures his creation, he sustains his creation. These things, you don't see this in any other account. And so I just want to point out this particular way of looking at it. Well, the caring God now comes into this picture. It's not just a creator. It's not a principle. It's not a superstitious story. This is now an intelligent, personal, powerful creator who continues to have a relationship, and that relationship is one of good disposition toward you. In other words, being well disposed. Now, I don't know about you, but if there's an all-powerful God of the universe, I hope he likes me. I mean, that's really kind of the big question, right? You know what that's called? Grace. The word grace means someone being well disposed toward you 
for no particular reason of what you have done. That's grace. He's the God of grace. Listen to this. Do not be afraid, this is Jesus speaking, of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, people are not your ultimate problem. They do not have your eternal life in their hands. He said, listen, reason this way. He's reasoning from the lesser to the greater. He said, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? In other words, sparrows don't matter very much. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So do not be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. Listen to what this is saying. God knows everything that is happening and he is well disposed toward you. So don't be afraid. He's not some long lost God who created the universe and now you're just at the mercy of faceless, nameless forces. This is a God who knows every hair on your head and cares about things far far less important than you are. You're starting to see how very different this explanation is, how much it resonates with intelligent, personal, and purposeful human beings like us. This story makes more sense than anything else we've talked about. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying the scientific method is a bad thing. I'm just saying this story of how everything got here makes way more sense than any of the stories we've heard. But let's keep going with the personal God. Which of you fathers, this is another example, Jesus again speaking, if your son asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. Or if he asks for an egg, you'll give him a scorpion. He said, of course not. If you, even though you're as flawed as you are, know how to give good gifts to your children and want to give good gifts to your children, how much more Will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What does that mean, give the Holy Spirit? It means dwell within you. I mean, very intimate. Remember Ephesians 1, when you placed your trust in Christ, you were sealed with the very Spirit of God. This is a very personal and intimate God. There's a reason why in the New Testament, this relationship that you can have with the creator and sustainer of the universe is often characterized in a family relationship. You've been adopted. That's one way of thinking about salvation is you have become children of God. You've been heirs with Jesus Christ. I'm just quoting all kinds of phrases that the New Testament uses. This is incredibly intimate. This is not the whim of some powerful deity, don't know what'll happen next, maybe we'll all get killed, maybe they'll be happy, I hope we serve them well enough. This is not the impersonal cold, well, what you see is all there is, and it's just cold and impersonal. This is an explanation for the complexity and the order of what you see, and beyond that, it begins to explain the way you and I are wired at our basic level. Why do human beings love their children? I mean, there's no particular reason for that other than we seem to be wired that way, going way beyond self-interest to do that. He says, this is you partaking of the divine nature. So let me summarize that briefly and just say, what approach am I taking here? The approach that I'm taking is not so much looking at the details of the creation story, I wanna step back and I wanna go just a little bit deeper than that and say, everybody has a creation story, or at least you live like you do. Everybody has to come to terms with that question, how did we get here? 
How do we order my world? How am I gonna order my world? How am I gonna control what piece I can control? How am I gonna predict it? How am I gonna make sense of things when they don't go right? How am I gonna make sense of things when they do go right? In other words, we're going to answer that question. The problem is if you answer that question with scientism, and by that mean, it's just a cold, hard universe and you don't matter. You know what that causes in people? causes a great deal of anxiety, and it ultimately leads to despair. And I want to point out something to you, and I'm sorry if this is getting a little highbrow, but if you look at the most prominent philosophies of life that have been spawned since the Enlightenment, almost all of them are despairing. The most prominent philosophy of life today is basically uh, postmodernism, but a better name behind that is existentialism. And it's a very dark, despairing kind of a way of looking at life. Like, no one cares, and there's no point to any of this. When you take the Christian story, all of a sudden you begin to see dynamism. We're going somewhere. We were made for a purpose. This whole place is going somewhere. It's ordered. It is going toward an end. This creation story has an intelligent, personal, purposeful creator. And you go, yes, yes. Every human being ever that's looked at the stars said, this thing looks like somebody made it. That's what Romans 1 says. It says you can think whatever you want, but it's obvious and it's been obvious to every human who ever lived, boy, somebody made this place. You know, it, it takes a lot of work to come up with the ideas. I'll bet this was totally random. Wow, that's pretty impressive. You know, no human being anywhere, anytime ever thought that, okay? So people know that part of it. But then to hear this story and say, yes, this is why the gospel is so powerful. You go, yes, that's just right. That explains everything. Now, here's what I wanna get to. Given that that story, and that is the reality, that is the creation account, what difference does that make to you and me? Well, it does more than just saying, look, science is a great servant, but I'm sorry, I just can't go with the infinite universes and don't know where they came from. I mean, nice try, but that's not a particularly useful, believable, or satisfying answer to that question can't go to the ancient Babylonians and say, hey, Marduk, that's my guy, you know? Although, did you know that paganism is on the rise? And, okay, this is a rabbit trail. Okay, paganism is on the rise in America. Now, what do I mean by paganism? The easiest way to explain it is the worship of ancient gods and goddesses, like the uh, uh, Egyptian goddess uh, Ishtar, big group, uh, that are following those kinds of religions. There's a throwback. You know why that's happening? I'll give you my opinion. If your life is pretty despairing and you don't have any good answers, you'll grab hold of almost anything. That's why the gospel is so powerful. This resonates. People know, yes, this makes sense. A creator God, a sustaining God who cares about me. Now, why does that story make sense to, uh, to you and me? So what? And here's what I want you to think about. The providence of God is a daily reality for those in Christ. This is a 
powerful implication of Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1 and everything is you have a God who is powerful, who has purpose, and who cares about you, cares to the point to send his son to die to reconcile us to him. This is scandalous relationship. I mean, this is crazy. In fact, of all the stories that people have ever come up anywhere, anytime in the history of humanity, Christianity is unique in this. Bruce Shelley put it this way, first line of his book on church history. He said, Christianity is the only religion whose central belief is the humiliation of its God. Gods don't get crucified. That just doesn't happen. Gods don't care about you. That also just doesn't happen. And yet, this story so resonates with us as humans, is you understand that God is not trying to help you control the world. And this is what's so very different about Genesis 1-1. It isn't a textbook to say, if you do this, you can control the world. You can control your circumstances. You can make sure nothing bad ever happens to you. Some of the creation stories, that's their goal. This says, look, you have a deep need to understand what's going on and for security. And the way to get that need is not to control the people and the things around you. That's led to a lot of evil in the world, hasn't it? He said, is for you to surrender and recognize I am in control of everything and I love you. That is a mind-blowing concept. That's Genesis 1-1. It says, I know that you were wired to need to order your world, and I'm gonna tell you how I did it. And I'm gonna tell you that I love you, and I'm gonna tell you that you can quit worrying. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to despair. If you will surrender and trust, have faith, same word in the New Testament, if you will trust me, I am the creator, sustainer, loving God. And I went to the steps to prove it, to become human and die as a human being, to give you a down payment that what I'm saying is true. Does this start to make sense of some of the Christian story? This is the creation story. And the sustaining story is that our God is personal, intelligent, powerful, and purposeful, and he is provident. That is a great little word. I love that word because it comes from the word to provide. So what does it mean, God's providence? You should think about God's providence every day. And it is your connection to Genesis 1-1. Is this creator provides for you, his providence. And what that means is, is Jesus said, there's one way that Jesus talked about it. He said, your soul is in the palm of my hand and nothing can take it away from me. When you've placed your trust in Christ, there is no outside force. There's no God, no goddess, no scientific principle, no Satan, no demon, no heaven, no hell, nothing that is powerful enough to tear you away from Jesus Christ. This providence of God, this ongoing caring of God is, is innately connected to the creation story. But let me tell you how I think we walk around. And I don't mean this to sound mean, I don't mean this to sound judgmental, but I think that if we aren't careful, living in the world in which we live, we become functional deists. What's a deist? 
A deist is someone that believes in God. A deist is someone that can believe in this God, a personal God, the God of Genesis 1-1. But a deist is somebody who thinks that his creating stopped in Genesis chapter one. He ordered the world, he started the world, and then he said, I've built in all the principles and let it go, and I'll see you kids later. And I think there's an extent to which we say, I know God's the creator, I know Jesus died on a cross for me, I know that I have eternal life held in his hands safely for me, and yet we don't really deep down think of God's providence, his ongoing sustaining and involvement in our lives. Is that a fair statement about the way we sometimes live our lives as Christians? We don't really get the full implication of this creator God, of his providence, his ongoing relationship with us. It is built in, it is baked in to Genesis 1.1 it's the God who is, who cares, who relates, and who sustains us. I wish, and I, I think if we think about this in our head and then transfer it to our hearts, we will feel God's presence and his sustaining power all day, every day. There is a reason that when, think about what the New Testament could have said. The New Testament could have said, when you place your faith in Christ, you have been rescued and your eternal life is sealed and in two weeks you will be mailed a card that says so. Please hold on to this card. You will need it at the end of your life. Right, I call that the Sam's Club salvation story, okay? He could have done a lot of things, but what does he do? He says the day will come when you will die and you will then be truly alive forever with me with an intimacy and love that's not filtered by this universe, by these fallen bodies. It won't be, it'll be pure, undiluted, if you will, God's love. And that's pretty powerful, isn't it? That's what you're going to get. But right now, I want to give you a piece of my heart. And so you have the Holy Spirit living in you. That's what the New Testament says. That's the sign of your salvation. That's the sign of your guarantee, is that God places and breathes his spirit into us. What does that spirit do? Well, the New Testament talks about that at all. The spirit interprets our prayers when we don't even know what to pray for, Romans chapter eight. The spirit begins to shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. The spirit begins to encourage us, begins to take away the desires and the, the weakness of the flesh. In other words, we become sanctified is the word that the, that the religious word for it, made holy, which is just another way of saying being made more and more like Christ. The Holy Spirit inside us begins to shape us into brand new creatures. That's the way the New Testament talks about you. That's the way the New Testament talks about salvation. And so God's sign of salvation is so personal and intimate, it's a little down payment on the unfiltered love that you will see. And all I'm saying is, know it. 
feel it, believe it, and live that way, you will smile a lot more because God's creation story in Genesis 1-1 isn't a cosmic story, oh, it is that, but it becomes an extremely personal story. You can see the scriptures, a direct connection between the Holy Spirit in us, the faith in a Christ on a cross, and the creation of the universe by a creator God, you are tied to Genesis 1-1. This is the God that lives in you. It, it is a powerful story. And one of the best verses to cement this is this. Romans 8, this is Paul talking about the universe, how God's going to redeem the universe, how he has redeemed us. You got Romans 8, 28, and God works together for good in all things for his people, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You got all of that purpose, all of that order, all of that, I don't have to be in control because he's in control and he loves me. I can try and I can fail and I can manipulate a lot of people along the way, hence fallen humanity. But I can surrender to him. And here's how Paul concludes that. What shall we say in response to that? If God is for us, who can be against us? Do I need to control the world when the God of the universe loves me? No, I actually don't. I'm actually free to do what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. I can have compassion for people that don't deserve it. I can forgive people that don't deserve it. I can give to people from what I have and not worry about, gosh, I won't have as much as I want. In other words, you can behave the way Jesus behaved when you let go of that need to order your own world and trust in the God who's already ordered your world. He said, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for you and for me, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who makes us right. Who's gonna condemn us? Christ Jesus could condemn us, but he sits at the right hand of the Father and he's advocating for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Not trouble, not hardship, not persecution, not famine. What are these things? These are the things that humans have always feared because they don't understand and don't control them. He said, all those things you fear so much, none of those things can destroy the bond between you and the God who ordered this world. Neither death nor life, death is the ultimate chaos. Death is the ultimate fear. Death is the, I need to control this because I am scared of death. And God said, not even death can separate this. Not even death can stop my ability to order your world. I am convinced that none of these things or anything else in creation would be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, creation story. The reason to tell you about creation stories is everybody is hunting for an answer to how did we get here? How can I order this world? How can I assuage my fear and my anxiety and control this world? Understand it, control it. That's why humanity has never understood something it didn't want to use to control other people. And I'm not trying to be a cynic here, but if you stop and think about it, can you think of a technology that hasn't been used in a way to control people in one form or another? Has it done good? Yes, done a lot of good in a lot of cases, done a lot of harm in other cases. That's just the, that's just the record. But the point is we're all selfishly trying to control things. 
This is our life. Everybody's looking for an answer to that, some kind of anesthetic to deal with this anxiety and this pain. This creation account, this God, this Christ, this relationship, I believe this not because I felt it at first. I believe this because having studied everything else, this makes more sense. Human beings hear this story and they go, you know, I can't prove that, which you can't prove any creation account. I can't prove that, but you know what? That's right. That just nails who we actually are. And human beings hear other stories and they go, man, that's not even slightly believable. And I'm not trying to prove it to you by that. I'm just telling you, you know this is true. It resonates. And all I'm saying is, I want you to live every day like this is actually true. You are literally in God's hands. He is the provident God. He is the provider God. So when you think of Genesis 1-1, it's interesting to talk about how old the earth is. It's interesting to talk about those things. There's nothing wrong with that. What I want you to leave with and say, ah, that's that special story of my God who lives inside me, and it's the story of hope for the whole world. Does that make sense? That's what creation is actually about. That's why this creation story is so compelling. The gospel exploded in the world. You may think, oh, I got friends. They're ultra scientific or they're ultra rational or whatever. They're never gonna believe the gospel. Don't kid yourself. The gospel is exploding in the world. Why? Because it's true. And even more than that, it resonates with the very deepest questions you and I have. So I want you to live your life knowing you're in God's hands. Next week, we're gonna discuss a thorny little problem because so far we have creation, but we don't have any pesky people in it yet. And so the story of Adam and Eve is an interesting one, and I wanna address this question. Was there a real Adam and Eve? Or were they just a particular chain in the evolutionary scheme of things? Does that sound interesting? Let's see what the scripture has to say about that next week. Thank you guys very much.